0: there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on twitter or even be our friend at facebook if you'd like to talk to a real person we can be reached at 323-660-1175 thanks for listening and enjoy uh, David Van is a Stegner and NEA fellow whose short story collection "Legend of a Suicide" is a staff favorite. It is. We're very happy to have him back at the store, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome David Van. Thanks. Thank you all for coming. And uh, including friends who have repetitively come to my events. Thank you, and thanks to uh, Skylight Books for repetitively having me here. Um, it's uh, it's great. It, it, independent booksellers have really, uh, for all three of my books, have been kind of the only thing going for me out there. I mean, they've really been great. For a mile down, the first book I toured with, it was all independent booksellers. They were the only ones who would have me, and. Um, and it was events here in in uh, L.A. and San Diego that actually put that book on the L.A. Times list. I mean, it was very brief; it's like one week, um, and then you couldn't buy it anymore. It was out stock for the next six weeks, but uh, still, it was very exciting. And and it was all because of independent booksellers hand selling the book and in. Um, Uh, France, I got to see the real power that they could have and and that I wish they had here in the U.S. Um, In France, they have this law that you can't discount a book more than 5%. And so it protects independent booksellers. You also get a tax break for opening a bookstore. And so as a result, every neighborhood still has a really thriving independent bookseller. And the booksellers themselves go through a course of study similar to what a librarian would do here, a two-year course of study. And it's a very respected role and, and people in their communities go Oh, <laughs> man. Repetitively to the same bookstore for years, sometimes even decades, and and follow the recommendations of their booksellers. I mean, it's 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 what I wish the U.S. could be. Um, but you're a little bit of that. You're a little bit of France right here in the U.S. Making it happen. There's one woman in France, a, a bookseller, who's individually sold thir- more than 1,300 copies of *Legend of a Suicide*. I mean, that's incredible. The power that like even even one person can have. And that's not going to happen for me. at borders. Barnes and Noble, like or at least it hasn't it happened yet I can't really imagine it. Um, so thank you to Skylight books um, uh, excuse me. Caribou Island has a couple of true stories in the background. It's not really autobiographical, and it doesn't stick to the true stories very closely at all. Legend of a Suicide, the first three stories were very, very autobiographical, uh, only changed a little bit at the end of each story. And then later, that book becomes more fictional. The boy and his father go homesteading for a year in Alaska. And that's something I never did with my dad. But my dad did ask me to come spend a year back in Alaska with him. And then I said no, and two weeks later, he came killed himself and so I felt really guilty and so I think years later I understood that that's why I wrote the short novel that's within Legend of a Suicide is that it was a chance to say yes to go back and, and spend that year in Alaska with my dad and in that way fiction I think gives a wonderful second chance to redo these family stories um, it's kind of redemptive in that way my family has six suicides and one murder so uh, there's been no shortage of material and and a little redemption is an order, you know, a second chance is a good thing with a family like that. Um, so, in the background of Caribou Island, there are <laughs> two family stories. One is the murder suicide of my stepmother's parents. Uh, her father told her mother that the last 15 years of marriage had been a lie, and he'd been having an affair with another woman, and he was moving on and uh, leaving her. And um, Uh, she wrote suicide notes to everyone in the family including to him and didn't plan to kill him uh, but then changed her mind. Uh, He had a gun collection, she grabbed a couple guns and shot him and then herself. Um, So I don't really remember them But it was a really disturbing story at the time. It was when I was 12. And it was 11 months later that my dad killed himself while talking on the phone with my stepmother. And that's part of why his act seemed so cruel was because it came after she had suffered through that with her parents. And then he sent her flowers that she received three days later on her birthday. Uh, So the whole thing... uh, Really sucked, uh, obviously, but 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 I I wrote about his suicide and legend of a suicide, but I hadn't written about my stepmother. I'd always wondered how she'd gotten through all these deaths, and how she'd been able to get through all of it, and so. I used her name that she had in the story collection, Rhoda, in here, but it's not Rhoda's story. It ends up being her, her mother's story as the main character. And what happened in real life isn't what happens here. And it's what happened in real life happened in California, but here it's set in Alaska. So it, it's really become fiction much more than Legend of a Suicide was, but it's still powered by that true story in the background because I can't seem to make that up. I, I can't make up the, the emotional and psychological weight or gravity of, of the character. Characters. Um, I think a better writer must be able to, and I hope that someday I will be able to. But for now, I rely on the engine of the true stories in the background. And for me, writing is a really unconscious, out-of-control process where I don't know what's going to happen each day, what the characters are going to do or say. And there's all this pattern that happens that, that is a surprise to me. I didn't realize, for instance, that this was going to be all about marriage and that everyone, it's seven different points of view, that they'd all be thinking about marriage. And And when my wife read it, her response was to ask me, are we okay? Uh, And I realized, like, you know, I hadn't even expected to write about marriage, and I certainly didn't mean to put my own marriage in jeopardy. Like, you know, that was my my last intention. Um, So, I I guess that out of control (coughs) part, the first time I understood it was the novella in Legend of Suicide, where there's an enormous surprise that happens halfway through, and I didn't see it it coming until I was halfway through writing the sentence. That that was a big surprise that changed everything. It it just uh, undid all my plans and my ideas about what I was doing. I thought I was writing toward the father's suicide again and trying to get closer to him and really understand that. And that's not where it ends up going. And so that was the first time I understood. I reread the 80 pages leading up to that moment and saw that the pressure had been put on the characters so that that moment had to happen. And that, uh, writing, I, I kind of felt like a big dummy. Like, I'm the one who wrote those 80 pages, but there's all this pattern in there that I had no idea was there. And with this book, too, I had these experiences. Like, it was only six months after finishing it. It wasn't until then that I understood that I was Irene, in many ways, the main character. I actually didn't realize that when I was writing it. So, um, so I can't be held responsible for anything I read tonight. I guess it was the <laughs> final message <laughs> out of all of that. Sounds like I'm trying to give some giant excuse Um, (laughs) I'll go ahead and read from the the opening of it Uh, this is Irene the main character talking to her daughter Rhoda (coughs) my mother was not real she was an early dream a hope she was a place snowy (coughs) sorry I got this cough in New York City everyone was all sick as dogs like a month ago (coughs) it's lingering I'll start over my mother was not real she was an early dream a hope She was a place, snowy like here and cold, (coughs) a wooden house on a hill above a river. An overcast day, the old white paint of the buildings made brighter somehow by the trapped light, and I was coming home from school. 10 years old, walking by myself, walking through dirty patches of snow in the yard, walking up to the narrow porch. I can't remember how my thoughts went then, can't remember who I was or what I felt like. All of that is gone, erased. I opened our front door and found my mother hanging from the rafters. I'm sorry, I said, and I stepped back and closed the door. I was outside on the porch again. You said that, Rhoda asked. You said you were sorry? Yes. Oh, mom. It was long ago, Irene said, and it was something I couldn't see even at the time, so I can't see it now. I don't know what she looked like hanging there. I don't remember any of it, only that it was. Rhoda scooted closer on the couch and put her arm around her mother pulled her close. They both looked at the fire, a metal screen in front, small hexagons, and the longer Rhoda looked, the more these hexagons seemed like the back wall of the fireplace made golden by flame, as if the back wall, black with soot, could be revealed or transmuted by fire. Then her eyes would shift and it would be only a screen again. I wish I had known her, Rhoda said. Me too, Irene said. She patted Rhoda's knee. I need to get to sleep. Busy day tomorrow. I'll miss this place. It was a good home, but your father wants to leave me. And the first step is to make us move out to that island, to make it seem he gave it a try. That's not true, Mom. We all have rules, Rhoda, and your father's main rule is that he can never seem like the bad guy. He loves you, Mom. Irene stood and hugged her her daughter. Good night, Rhoda. (coughs) So another true family story that's in the background of that is that my, uh, my mother's mother, Uh, found her mother hanging from the rafters when she was 10, Maybe. maybe. No one, she never talked about it. My mom's given different, differing versions for the last 30 years, so who knows how she died. But it was definitely suicide, and it might have been hanging, and she might have been 10, or she might have been 15, and it was in Canada, or maybe it wasn't, it was in California. So that's how my family goes for stories. That's part of why Legend of Suicide was in six pieces with conflicting viewpoints, because um, there's, there's never one story. Um, so I'll continue on right from that spot. In the morning, <clears throat> in the morning, Irene carried her lo- end of log after log from the truck to the boat. These are never going to fit together, she said to her husband, Gary. I'll have to plane them down a bit, he said, tight-lipped. Irene laughed. Thanks, Gary said. He already had that grim, worried look that accompanied all his impossible projects. Why not build a cabin with boards? Irene asked. Why does it have to have to be a log cabin? But Gary wasn't answering. Suit yourself, she said, but these aren't even logs. None of them is bigger than six inches. It's going to look like a hovel made out of sticks. They were at the upper campground on Skilak Lake, the water a pale jade green from glacial runoff, flaky from silt, and because of its depth, never warmed much, even in late summer. The wind across it chill and constant, and the mountains rising from its eastern shore still had pockets of snow. From their tops, Irene had often seen, on clear days, the white volcanic peaks of Mount Redoubt and Mount Iliamna across the Cook Inlet, and in the foreground, the broad pan of the Kenai Peninsula, spongy green and red-purple moss, the stunted trees rimming wetlands and smaller lakes, and the one highway snaking silver and sunlight as a river, mostly public land, their house and their son Mark's house, the only buildings along the shore of of Skilak, and even they. And even they were tucked back into trees so the lake still could seem prehistoric, wild. But it wasn't enough to be on the shore. They were moving out now to Caribou Island. Gary had backed his pickup close to where the boat sat on the beach with an open bow, a ramp for loading cargo. With each log he stepped onto the boat and walked its length. A wobbly walk because the stern was in the water and bobbing. Lincoln Logs, Irene said. I've heard about enough, Gary said. Fine. Gary pulled another small log. Irene took her end. The sky darkened a bit and the water went from light jade to a blue gray. Irene looked up toward the mountain and could see one flank whited. Rain, she said, coming this way. We'll just keep loading, Gary said. Put on your jacket if you want. Gary wearing a flannel work shirt, long sleeved over his t-shirt, jeans and boots, his uniform. He looked like a younger man, still fit for his mid-fifties. Irene still liked how he looked, unshaven, unshowered at the moment, but real. Shouldn't take much longer, Gary said. They were going to build their cabin from scratch, no foundation even, and no plans, no experience, no permits, no advice welcome. (laughs) <laughs> Which is actually how I've built various boats. Um, it's all worked out really well. <laughs> my first book is called "A Mile Down: The True Story of a Disastrous Career at Sea." Um, and this is also my father too. My father did this kind of thing. He uh, <coughs> took us out. Um, as I was telling uh, uh, Rich, Rick, like suddenly I forgot your name. I had to look down at your book. <laughs> um, as I was telling Rick earlier, uh, my dad took us out. Um, uh, rafting on a class five river in Alaska with no experience. He'd never rafted on a river in his life. And it's class five. It's like the toughest river there is. And it's Alaska. Like there's no one around. And he bought a new raft and there's no captain or anyone had any experience on board. And he just set us off on this river right after the lar- the most heavy rains, sustained rains, um, had hit the area. Like the worst that they'd had like all summer. And uh, so it was, a, it was a monstrous river. And we of course immediately hit this huge standing wave that completely swamped the boat. And we got flipped. Me and my from the front part of the boat in the back and my dad's platform fell apart because he had tied it incorrectly and my grandfather was diving for a rope in the back not to get swept overboard and then for the next few hours we just slammed into everything all the way down that river because we were just like a tank because we were completely filled with water Um, so that was the kind of adventure he would take us on so gary is based on my dad and on me Um, it's a great family tradition So Gary wanted to just do it, as if the two of them were the first to come upon this wilderness. So they kept loading, and the rain came toward them, a white shadow over the water, a kind of curtain, the squall line. But the first drops and wind always hit just before, invisible, working ahead of what she could see. And this always came as a surprise to Irene, those last moments taken away. And then the wind kicked up, the squall line hit, and the drops came down large and heavy, insistent. Irene grabbed her end of another log, walked toward the boat with her face turned away from the wind, the rain blowing sideways now, hitting hard. She wore no hat, no gloves, her hair matting, drips off her nose, and she felt that first chill as the rain soaked through her shirt to her arms, one shoulder, her upper back and neck. She hunched away from it as she walked, placed her log, and then walked back hunched the other way, her other side soaking through now, and she shivered. Gary walking ahead of her, hunched also, his upper body turned away from the rain as if it wanted to disobey his legs, take off in its own direction. He grabbed the end of another log, pulled it out, stepping backward, and then the rain hit harder. The wind gusted, and the air was filled with water, white even and close. The lake disappeared, the waves gone, the transition to shore became speculative. Irene grabbed the log and followed Gary into oblivion. The wind and rain formed a roar, against which Irene could hear no other sound. She walked mute, found the bow, placed her log, turned and walked back, no longer hunched. There was no dry part left to save. She was soaked through. Gary walked past her, a kind of birdman, his arms curved out like wings first opening, trying to keep his wet shirt away from his skin or in some instinctive first response to battle, readying his arms. When he stopped at the truck bed, water streamed off the end of his nose, his eyes hard and small, focused. Irene moved in close. Should we stop? She yelled over the roar. We have to get this load out to the island, he yelled back. And then he pulled another log, so Irene followed, though she knew she was being punished. Gary could never do this directly. He relied on the rain, the wind, the apparent necessity of the project. It would be a day of punishment. He would follow it, extend it for hours, drive them on, a grim determination like fate, a form of pleasure to him. Irene followed because once she had endured, she could punish. Her turn would come. And this is what they had done to each other for decades now, irresistibly. Fine, she would think, fine. And that meant just wait. It's not the end of a section; it continues on for the chapter. But um, you know, there has to be some kind of hook, like buy the book to read the rest of the first chapter. Um, anyway, so it's about a, a marriage going really well out, out in the Alaskan wilderness. Um, uh, I don't know what to say about it. You know, so the the uh, uh, I was really surprised to find out that I was Irene. Um, I, had, I didn't realize that till later. Uh, she has that longer legacy of the suicide in the background. I had two years of, of headaches, um, and she gets a really terrible headache after this, after this storm, uh, where i 'd walk around for like three days at a time, not able to sleep, and the painkillers didn 't do anything i 'd just be moaning and it, I, I, I was really surprised to find out like how much of her experience was mine, and, and I guess that 's inevitable, but the weird thing was that this is like the circus fest of Dave because i 'm um, each of the characters you know so i 'm um, Irene, but then I'm also Gary. Like I'm Irene in her view of men, like I didn't the men in my family were really kind of awful. Like in addition to my dad's suicide, we had my grandfather blaming my stepmother for the whole suicide, which is totally unfair, not her fault. I come from this family of liars, where we told lies about the little things, like hunting squirrels, which is what I did all the time. Um, I'd have six versions of how I killed the squirrel by the time I got back home, so my dad never heard a true story from me. But then we also told like lies about the big things, like my stepmother being responsible for for my dad's suicide. Um, where, how did I get off on the the lie thing? <laughs> I knew I was gonna lose it when you. Tell me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, thanks. So, so the men of my family, not so great really. And so I wrote Irene's view of Gary is kind of my view of the men of my family. They were kind of impatient and kind of vacant, like kind of no one home, kind of not there in some basic emotional or psychological way. Like my grandfather after my dad's suicide just decided to not talk to anybody for the rest of his life. So that was a great decision. Um, so he just sat in a chair and, and was silent, and bitter for like, you know, the next 10 years. That that, that, that served him and served us all. Pretty pretty well. Um, so so I have Irene's view of Gary, but then I realize I'm Gary also. Like, I have that impatience, and I have that vacancy. Uh, and I'm uh, Carl and, and Jim and all these others. So I'll read a section from... Um, uh, later on in the book, it's hard to excerpt from a novel. I, I have to give you tiny little bits of, of background as I go along, but this doesn't destroy any important plot. And then, of course, that makes you wonder why is it in the book? That's <laughs> not important plot. Um, I can't really answer that one. Uh, but anyway, I think that this scene won't wreck anything for you. So. Um, there, uh, Gary and Irene have a daughter, Rhoda. Uh, Rhoda's the one that we like best and care about most. She's the most likable person in the book. And she's engaged to this dentist, Jim. Uh, she's 30, he's 41. But he's having an affair with Monique, who's up visiting with her boyfriend, Carl, and she's like 22 or 23 or something. Um, and Rhoda, of course, doesn't know they're having an affair, and she's now invited Monique and Carl to dinner, which is a bummer for, for Jim. Uh, so and and Carl is kind of based on me, like his girlfriend, Monique, is like the woman who first I first fell in love with, first broke my heart, like didn't care about me at all. Um, her uh, parents were bigwigs, like Monique's parents are. they were in Washington D.C., and I spent a summer with them. Her mom was second in command for the Agency for International Development. Her dad had been a um, uh, diplomat for the, for the Brits, and they'd lived around Africa and stuff. And uh, they thought I was slow. and the only compliment her, her mom ever gave me was that I was genuine, which meant that I really was slow. I wasn't taking it. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so in the book, her parents call him Slow Carl, and this is one of the things he burdens under. Um, okay. So, uh, Jim sat on the couch again, and Rhoda started fixing dinner. Caribou steaks from her mother, Uh, Irene's a bow hunter in the book. She set them in a roasting pan with whole cloves of garlic, Maui onions, olive oil, rosemary, balsamic, and black pepper. She had potatoes boiling, and she would steam broccoli. Monique walked out from the guest room, with Carl following behind. She was tall and kind of glamorous in a way, though she had a weird little nose, like an elf whose body had grown too big. Carl was out of his league, though, insecure and hopeless. Um, Jim, of course, doesn't think she has a weird little nose. He thinks she's totally beautiful. Um, Rhoda gave their relationship another few weeks at most. Hey, Rhoda said, have some wine. And there's a cheese platter over by Jim. We can all watch the rain together. It's like a, a sport in Alaska. Hi, Jim, Monique said. And Jim stood up, walked over to shake her hand and Carl's. He didn't say anything, though, which was odd. So much older than they were. It didn't make sense he should be awkward. Jim said you were one of his patients, Monique. Rhoda said this just to break the tension. I am indeed, Monique said. I've enjoyed the duck feet on the ceiling. Jim laughed. I put those there for the kids. For the hunters, Monique said. And there was silence again for some reason. That's, of course, a previous conversation. <laughs> it's so weird to pick something out of a novel. Um, so have a seat, Rhoda said. Can I pour you a glass of wine? I have shiraz and pinot gris. Shiraz, please, Monique said. And just some juice or water for Carl. He doesn't drink. drink. Thanks, Monique, Monique, Carl said. said. What? what, you don't, you don't drink. drink? Yeah, but I'm not six years old. Now not the time to make a stand for your manhood. You suck, Monique. Rhoda laughed, trying to break the tension again. Sounds like the tent has taken its toll. Yeah, Carl said. How's the tent been for you, Monique? A little uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. Carl's just mad because he's had some alone time. And where were you, Carl asked. I was in Seward. Ever been to Seward, Rhoda? Uh, Monique and Jim have just taken a trip to Seward, which is where they first gotten together. And they took a helicopter and landed on glaciers and, and such uh, while Carl was stuck in a tent in the rain. <laughs> Uh, it's kind of fun to have like yourself as a pathetic character in a book. There's something like intensely satisfying about that. I don't know what it is. Like I shouldn't, I shouldn't want myself to be like this pathetic, pathetic and laughable thing. But I don't know. It just it fit. Uh, so I was in Seward. Ever been to Seward, Rhoda? Rhoda was pissed off. They were fighting at her wine and cheese gathering, and she didn't know why Jim was being such a dolt. But she took this opening to try to change the tone. I love Seward, she said. The most beautiful bay and mountains all around. I haven't been there in years. We should go, Jim. Yeah, Monique said, you should take Rhoda to Seward. Sure, Jim said. He was in some kind of daze, or maybe just tired. Seward sounds good, he said. And that was it. Silence again. Rhoda wanted to kill all three of them. She turned back to her cooking and let them stew in their own weird pot of antisocial behaviors. She grabbed the lettuce, rinsed it quick, and tore it into little pieces. She cut up two tomatoes, part of a red onion, and threw in some pine nuts. She decided she didn't like Monique at all. She liked Monique the least out of the three of them. Her strange tone, telling Jim he should take her to Seward, as if she could pronounce upon their relationship. How old was she anyway? Like 22 or something, acting like she owned the world? All the while Rhoda worked. She had one ear cocked, and it was just silence over there. Absolute silence. Unbelievable. Who does that? And when dinner was finally ready, and they all sat down, it was Monique who started talking. Rhoda told me this great bear story today, she said. Do you have any bear stories, Jim? Rhoda didn't didn't like how Monique said Jim, as if she were talking down to him. And for some reason, he was letting that happen. Not really, he said. Do I have any good bear stories, Rhoda? Sure you do, sweetie. You have that one in the river with the salmon on your back. You always tell that one. And of course, he just told that to Monique recently. Um, Oh yeah, Jim said. But what about you, Carl? Have you seen a bear here? No, I've been wanting to see one. We even took a trip up to Denali, but we didn't see one. That's too bad, Rhoda said. Denali has a lot of bears. I can't believe you didn't see one there. That's really unlucky. That's me, Carl said. You're here in Alaska, though. That's lucky, and you're with Monique. Ah, Monique said. That's sweet. Thank you, Rhoda. So things were turning around after all. Rhoda was pleased. Monique seemed much brighter now, more friendly, and the conversation moved along normally. Just four people enjoying an evening, the way it should be. Oohs and ahs over the caribou. Killed by my own mother, Rhoda said. Then for dessert, she surprised everyone with homemade tiramisu. I bought the ladyfinger, she said, but the rest is mine. This is terrific, Monique said. What a feast. Yeah, thanks, Rhoda Carl said. This beats the hell out of the tent. Only Jim was still relatively quiet, which was unlike him. He'd had two glasses of wine, and usually that got him rambling. Jim just got back from Juneau, Rhoda said, talking with another dentist about joining the practice. This was, of course, the trip to Seward. How was Juneau? Monique asked. Oh, Juno's nice, Jim said. The Mendenhall Glacier, pretty hike around the lake at its foot. And if you go up the left side, you can get out onto parts of the glacier. I'd like to go out on a glacier, Monique said. Maybe land on one with a helicopter, and then lie down and do snow angels. That sounds good, Jim said. But Rhoda could tell something was wrong, or off, something wrong. She looked at Carl, but Carl was mesmerized by the tiramisu, staring down into it as he savored tiny bites from the tip of the dessert spoon. He had something going on with food. Carl, Monique said, you don't need to fuck the tiramisu, you can just eat it. Then she winked at Rhoda. Carl didn't even look up. Thanks, Monique, he said. More pleasure in this bowl than I've ever had with you. Ouch, Jim said, and he laughed. That's not nice, Jim, Rhoda said. Sorry. Hmm, Monique said. She clearly wasn't used to negative comments. Rhoda was secretly a little pleased. How about a game, Rhoda suggested. We could all play a game. Do you have Twister, Monique asked. Carl looked up. Twister? Twister? so i'll I'll stop there in the scene um at the end of the well, I won't tell you what happens at the end in the scene. that's awful. Why would I even consider doing that? I have the worst impulses sometimes <laughs> um, so uh let's see the um the book for me what I liked about writing it, what I really enjoyed i i had a uh, what I really enjoyed was focusing on the landscape. And this book had started for me 14 years ago when I finished Legend, finished Legend of a Suicide. Um, but I couldn't figure out how to, how to write it. I, I got 48 pages in, and then I just couldn't get any farther. Um, I couldn't see how a longer arc went. My, it's like my brain couldn't go there, couldn't see the larger structure. And I also didn't know whose story it was, where to focus. So it was just kind of an insubstantial mess. And at that time, no one would send out Legend of a Suicide. It actually, for 12 years, no agent would send it to editors. So, um, so I showed the world. I didn't write for the next five and a half years. And, and the world suffered uh, mightily from that lack of my writing from those five and a half years. Um, but I was also pouting because I couldn't figure out how to finish this book. I had really no idea how to do it. Um, they're now coming out in 16 languages, actually, which is like astounding to me after the 12 year wait. <laughs> like, really bizarre. <laughs> like, well, it's, not, it's nothing I did, believe me. Like, it's just, it, there's so much luck in a writer's life. And Legend of a Suicide only had three reviews. Like, Caribou Islands had like 25, but, but Legend of a Suicide had three. But one of them was the New York Times. And it was this guy, Tom Bissell, who went to bat for the book. And it totally changed my life. Like, one review. It's just total luck. It could have gone to someone who didn 't like the books much um, and and they could have said things that were totally true about the book that would have been negative. That would have been a, an accurate review also, but it, it didn 't It went to someone who like went to bad for it who had just he was friends with David Foster Wallace and had just gone through that suicide, so he 'd been kind of softened up for the subject and I mean really there 's so much luck in the, in the whole thing so because of that the u s publisher a bigger one picked up these books and the foreign publisher that 's how it all started um, but Anyway, the 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 five and a half years, I I really just thought I was never going to get published. Like, so all this kind of seems like gravy, Um, and I didn't think I'd get back to this book. But I knew that story was still there. You know, it was a strong family story. And then two years ago, when I was walking around at the end of January on Skeelak Lake, Lake, where Caribou Island is on the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska, it was a really beautiful day, and it was about fifteen degrees below. And the lake was frozen. I was walking out toward the island, and suddenly I could see this scene that I'll read now. That's now late in the book, but I thought it would be the opening of the book. And uh, I could see suddenly how to how to do the book. And I knew that Irene had to be the main character, and that it had to focus on her, and had to start with things already going terribly wrong in this thirty-year marriage. That there'd be a momentum from that, and that the whole thing would be kind of like the final sequence in that way. Like things are already kind of screwed by by page one. Excuse the language. Like I already had the. For the last one, and now, um, but anyway, so this is this is really this little. It's only like two pages, but uh, and then we'll have questions. But um, but this is the genesis of, of the book for me. And for me, the pleasure in the book was in the landscape description, because <laughs> the landscape is Alaska, where I grew up as a kid, and I think it's locked in this mythic way in my mind because it's my first couple of years of memories, and then I got ripped away to California, so it remained that kind of child vision of what the place was like and it, it shifts a lot under pressure like one example is at one point Rhoda's r- or uh, Irene is running through the forest on the island and she feels like the land is tilting and that the entire island is rolling over that it's top heavy and that's how the landscape does these crazy things these shifts that indicate the inside lives of the characters and that's what all my favorite writers do like like Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian and Annie Prue's The Shipping News and Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping and Elizabeth Bishop's poems and and we were just talking earlier about Hemingway's big two-hearted river where it's all kind of told through landscape so that's always been my my favorite uh, as a reader so anyway this is a a moment that focuses more on landscape Irene lay alone in her tent a quieter night than usual no wind and she tried to imagine what it would be like in winter not so hard to do really after living at the edge of this lake so many years (coughs) as she walked out onto it she'd find fault lines in the snow a thin dusting Faint ridges raised up where the ice had cracked. No other footsteps, no tracks of any kind. Irene the only figure on a broad pan of white. Early winter, the temperature minus 15. The mountains would be white, the lake and glacier. Only the, <coughs> only the sky a new color, rare winter sun, rare midwinter blue. The sun above the peaks moving sideways, unable to rise any higher. Irene would carry her bow, her footsteps the only sound, the world prehistoric, wind shifting <laughs> sorry, <coughs> Wind shifting the snow like sand, small dunes and hollows, the water close beneath. Irene imagined herself not properly dressed for the cold for some reason, wearing what she had worn inside the cabin, finished now, a blue sweater, thin down vest, wool pants and boots, a knit cap, white and gray, no gloves. Her hand holding the bow was cold, she walked toward the glacier, toward the mountains, away from the island, walked slowly, then stopped and looked around. Without her footsteps, no sound, no wind, no moving water, no bird, no other human. This bright world, the sound of her heart, the sound of her own breath, the sound of her own blood and her temples, those were all she would hear. If she could make those stop, she could hear the world. The water beneath her was moving, and that must make a sound. A dark current beneath ice, no surface to break, no ripples, but even that must make a sound. Deep water, layers and currents, and when one layer moved over another, something must hear that, some tearing of water against water. And over time, the changes in those currents, the shifts, the lake never the same from moment to moment, all of that must be recorded somehow. Irene could imagine herself continuing on over the thin crust, holding the bow in her left hand, letting the other hand warm in her pocket, continuing over light dunes of snow, pausing in an area of large flakes, the size of fingernails, individual snowflakes, their branches visible, lying at angles, razor thin. They looked ornamental, contrived, too large an individual to be real. She squatted down for a closer look, touched a flake, then wiped her hand across the surface, revealing the black of the lake, the color of ice over the depths, a vacuum of light, and no way to peer into it, the surface clear, but so dark as to be essentially opaque. The cold would press in, not dressed for this, not prepared, her legs and back cold. She'd be shivering soon, the sun so bright and without any warmth. Gary, she said, and she stopped, this big lake, so flat, only the small drifts of snow. She looked at the far shorelines, turned a slow circle, tried to see it all at once, the immensity of it. And then she would walk toward the nearest shoreline, wanting the cover of trees, the distances deceiving, elongating. At the edge of the lake, ruptures and monuments of ice, their peaks covered in snow, mountains of another scale. She stepped over a ridge, a giantess, slick ice beneath her boots, and then rock, large pebbles, the beach, into the trees quickly, home of winter birds, spruce grouse and willow ptarmigan, wide-tailed ptarmigan. She'd seen small flocks of red pole feed in temperatures colder than this. No trail here. She stepped over deadfall, pushed through bare patches of alder, grown thick, food for ptarmigan, into the taller white trunks of birch, the evergreen sitka spruce, tall and thin, with branches bent at odd angles. And I'll stop there so that I don't give away any uh, plot there. When I was writing this, this book, it was five and a half months um, after that 14 years ago where it wasn't successful. Then two years ago, I was out on the lake and, and saw that scene. I thought the book would begin with that. Um, I worked every day uh, for five and a half months, uh, seven days a week, writing for two or three hours, and there was a wonderful momentum that happened to it. And each day, I'd read through the thirty or so pages that came before, make little edits, and each two weeks, I'd read through the whole thing. So when I finished, the first draft that I ended up with is the same as this. It, it, I mean, there's only a, a tiny bit of background material I added that the editor asked for, like less than a thousand words, and. Um, and then a few line edits but but no scenes added or cut or order of anything changed and I like that I like that it 's that, that a reader can also see what it was like writing it you know that, that this was what the the experience was like um, kind of not changed much um, so i 'll uh, be happy to answer any questions and thank you again for coming and, and Skylight like Books for having me and uh, thank you for your patience so uh, any questions. Nice. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah? Do you feel any gratitude for putting <coughs> Alaska on the front pages to Sarah Palin and Murkowski? <laughs> Lisa Murkowski loses a primary, mm-hmm. gets the attention of the whole country, mm-hmm. and every other word is Alaska, 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 and yeah. Sarah Palin, right, right. do you feel any gratitude to those uh, well, in the in the in the UK and in France, um, they make I, you know everyone asks me, of course, about Sarah Palin, and I got a chance to write about her TV show for the Guardian Books, and there are definitely lots of Palin supporters who have Google alerts set because I'm sure they're not hanging out on the Guardian Books site all the time, and yet they were all immediately responding to my post. Um, my feeling about uh, Palin is that. That alas, the wilderness doesn't have any inherent meaning. It just doesn't mean anything on its own. And, and it, just, it only means what meaning we give it. And so she's used the Alaskan landscape to plant her family values and say that this is what Alaska is. And I think that Alaska, as our last frontier, and as wilderness, becomes this, this place for us to put dreams, like for us to imagine a kind of goodness about ourselves and resourcefulness, that thrown out into the wilderness will make our way somehow. And so I think she plays off of that in a way that... You know, it's it's pretty smart for her political capital to to be doing that, to be using that kind of longer dream. That's part of an essential imagining of of who who Americans are and what America is, with our whole westward movement thing and wilderness and 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 all that. So, I think she plays it pretty smartly. I, I think that all of her family values are really hypocritical. I don't think she actually lives them or even believes them, and and so you know i 'm not happy to see the state co opted for 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 the family values that in the even the first episode you can see that the family 's not actually constructed uh, around those particular values um, uh, you know Lisa Murkowski is I, I think is a smarter more interesting uh political figure out of Alaska. Um, but I'm you know I'm happy any attention that goes to Alaska and that might sell three more books, you know? I'm willing to have Palin well no, I guess not. I'd actually sell less books and not have Palin exist. I guess so I had to get you know, it was interesting someone was asking me, um, you know, that I'd use all these family stories if I would give up the books to have my dad back. And I and I realized, like, yeah, I would actually. Like, I'm pretty self-serving and would like to see, you know, the books do well. And I'm willing to do just about anything. To get into magazines, I actually did all these stories where I would almost die. Like, I, I made a little 15-foot hurricane hunter out of aluminum. A little, like, kayak coffin thing that I was supposed to take into hurricane for outside magazine and almost die and write about. that's the only way I could get into the magazine. And then for men's journal, I had to sail by land. From Florida to California. Like I was sailing across like Texas on Highway 90, like a little like tricycle with a windsurfer sail, basically. You know, my wife having to follow behind me for a month in a truck was getting sleepy and almost ran me over a couple times and big rigs would come by and the sails going over again. And then uh, for for Esquire, the first one I could do for them was to build a trimaran to try to do a nonstop solo circumnavigation where I had to sign this this disclaimer from them. It was incredible, it was like six pages long and included that I wouldn't sue them for psychological damage, so this is the only way I could get into the magazines. And so, you know, I'll do pretty much anything for the writing. But I would actually rather not have Sarah Palin in the world than sell more books um, because of exposure for Alaska. Um, that would be my preference. I, I, I just, I'm so shocked that she's still around. It didn't it seem like, you know, in the concession speech when they didn't let her talk that she was just going to go away. I just thought she was going to go away. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, let's just pretend she doesn't exist. And Jack London wasn't Alaskan. So there's not that many famous Alaskans. It's a good field to be in. I recommend writing about Alaska. Other questions? Yeah? Yeah, I, um, I read that review the New York Times. And uh, I was so impressed that when I read your uh, first Mm-hmm. And I just feel you're a remarkable writer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. That's so nice. And I've read an enormous amount. I'm a retired librarian, but I'm oh, wow. a librarian. And in the legend of Susai, I had trouble putting things together as to who was what. But I felt that was creative, like poetry, rather than. Flat out um, I thought that enhanced. oh great, thank you, thank you. As, I, I mentioned earlier that we didn 't have one true family story. you know everyone in my family disagreed about who my father was, what happened, and what it meant because everyone was driven differently by their guilt and anger and shame and all that and i was I wrote that book from when I was nineteen till I was twenty nine but all the pieces that are in there, I wrote really quickly actually they were just little spots within this ten year like morass of trying to figure out how to write about it, where I threw away everything from the first three or four years because there was too much emotion on the first page, um, and then gradually got to keep stuff. But the idea of the book, the title, Legend of a Suicide, means a series of portraits of a suicide because I was reading Chaucer's Legend of Good Women and I saw that that literary form of a series of portraits from writing about saints' lives is really useful when you don't have one dramatic arc that makes sense to you and a story that makes sense. Um, I wrote the short story called Legend of Good Men that's about all the different suitors for the mother that come by afterwards that are possible replacement fathers. It's kind of like a telemachus story. and that's where I first used that title, and then I realized that could be applied to the whole thing, that the six pieces are each written in a different style and have a kind of stylistic debate, and there's a debate in content. Like, there's different versions of the father's suicide and different versions of who he was and what the whole thing means, and and especially to the boy. It was, like, standing for me. Um, So uh, it was really... Just as I said, out of control, unconscious. It was just a big mess. I had no idea what I was doing. But then it all came together in a way that, thanks, thanks, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah? There... yeah? Um, I'm going to ask about uh, I don't know all of your work, and I was curious if you've written memoir
1: too.
0: So yeah. 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 The, the sailing one, um, A Mile Down, is memoir. And then I have a a new book, a nonfiction book called Last Day on Earth, A Portrait of the NIU School Shooter that comes out the end of October this year. And that's a story I did for Esquire uh, about a a school shooting near Chicago, which you won't have heard of because it was big in the news for a couple days. It was Valentine's Day 2008, but then there was no info available. No one could get any of the info. And I got really lucky and got the full 1,500 page police file. So it's all of his emails to all of his online contacts and friends and everything, his mental health history, uh, all the family interviews, uh, military history, juvenile record, everything. And so it's a really complete... Um, portrait of a shooter, but I blend it with my own memoir, inheriting all my father's guns after his death. My family decided it would be a really good idea to give me his full arsenal after he killed himself with a gun, and I was 13. So that was really great. So I would sneak around with this 300 Magnum and shoot streetlights just in, like in the, those first three stories in Legend of a Suicide, are very autobiographical. Um, and I'm just lucky I didn't hurt someone else or myself. I was sighting in on people with a shell in the chamber for a bear rifle. I mean, it was, you know, it's a little sketchy. And I was like sneaking into people's houses. And- and, um, it was kind of a bad time so, uh, so I, I included my memoir because I didn't want to make him a monster I wanted to keep him close and I wanted to try to figure out how did I not cross that line and end up hurting someone and why did he cross the line so uh, I hope to come back in, in, in November to be on tour again uh, for that so I've done a couple memoirs but but uh, for me, it's the fiction that really takes off with that al- that unconscious pattern. To me, happens more in the fiction because it's not set. What has to happen? I'm careful not to make up characters or events in my nonfiction. Like um, so. I feel like that constrains it in some way, and it, it doesn't feel like it launches in the same way as the fiction. So that's part of why I was happy to have the fiction finally published, because I feel like that's what I like most, and it, it's my best work, I think. I mean, I like writing nonfiction. I think nonfiction is a great field. But I think there are better nonfiction writers out there who get their, their nonfiction to take off in a, in a more you know, exciting, surprising way. That didn't sell my next book very well, did it? <laughs> 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 oh well, when somebody loses some. It's a it's called Last Last Day on Earth. The a portrait of the NIU school shooter, and it's one that my agent didn't want to send out she thought it would have no commercial appeal, just like Legend of the Suicide. No one wants to send it out, um, and so I sent it to an AWP prize series, same as Legend of the Suicide, won their nonfiction prize. So it comes out with a really small publisher, it's University of Georgia Press. Um, so it again may not have no life, or may have a life, it'll depend on luck, like if someone reviews it or not. Um, uh, Right after they decided it had no commercial appeal, Columbine was number one on like the New York Times. So I was like, because they said, No one wants to read about a mass murder. That seemed like a strange thing to say. Like, really? No one wants to read about a mass murder? Um, sorry? No, she's actually wonderful. I mean, I love her in all ways. That was, I think, the only slip-up. I think in every way, she's been fantastic. Uh, And much better than the three I had before who wouldn't send it out. One of them was just mean to me. Sent me an email saying, uh, I have million-dollar clients who send just one email a year. If you want this relationship to succeed, you're going to have to learn how to respect my time. And I sent like two emails. You know? (laughs) I just felt like, wow. Okay, I feel the love. (laughs) You know, reviews have indicated the book was very grim. Mm -hmm. Uh, But to me, the writing made it so attractive that the grimness. Thank you, thank you. If only every American could be you. That's great. Yeah, my feeling about tragedy is that, first of all, for 2,500 years, I think Western culture, like almost all of our great works, have been tragedy. Like I think that's actually what we write in Western culture. So it seems bizarre to object to and have to defend. Like why one would write tragedy? It's like you should have to defend why you write anything other than than tragedy. Um, but the other thing about tragedy is that in real life, it's meaningless and empty. There's just a cold, flat finality to it that doesn't connect anything. And that's part of why it's so terrifying, is that it's just so meaningless. Someone very close to you dies and there's no sense of purpose to it. You know? So there's what's different in tragedy and fiction or movies is that it's meaningful. It's connected to everything in that entire narrative. And it makes us feel in some way and it, it feels complete and and so that's redemptive even if it's still tragic it's such a different thing than the, than the real thing and i can't believe that americans don't have some tragedy in their lives so it i think it's a particularly american thing to be big babies about reading tragedy um, I, I don't really understand it Like i haven't experienced it in any other country um... so thank you and, and i may you s- cause sweeping change <laughs> across the country <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah? yeah I read both reviews, the New York Times and the LA Times. <laughs> is there anything that you thought that either of these reviewers missed that they should have found, that they should have noticed that was obvious to you? God, that's a great question. I, I have uh, never actually had that one. And uh, I guess the thing to me that never gets talked about in reviews is style so I actually got one recently the new statesman you can look it up she totally hates my style but I love her review because she actually talked about the style you know it drives her crazy that I use sentence fragments You know, she says it's like Hemingway, like all the annoying stuff in Hemingway. She's actually not a good critic in that way because it's nothing like Hemingway. It's actually, Hemingway style uses a bunch of grammatical morphemes, a bunch of extra ands and buts and stuff that creates this soup where the grammar actually falls apart and you just get little content islands. That's exactly the opposite of cutting out all the grammatical morphemes and just heaping up the content. So she was ultimately kind of dumb in the analysis, but, but it was great that she noticed at least that they were sentence fragments. And even though she was pissed off about it, and it's like the worst review I've gotten, you got to love her for going there, you know, because no one else does. And no one ever talks about style. And when you're writing, it's no small thing, you know. You're kind, of, you're kind of interested in how the sentences are shaped, you know. It's a big part of writing. So that's a strange thing that that's not part of our national debate about books. Like, we just kind of don't go there. Whereas in France, you never give a reading. Someone sits, and they cross their legs, and they look very pensive, and you just have a conversation. And it's about stylistic choices and such. You know, it's, it's about... The form of the book and, and how it compares to other books and what your influences are. And, and uh, you know, it, 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 so I, it'd be great if we, if we did more of that in reviews. If some part, you know, it could be just a sixth of the review, has to address the style in some way and how that relates to the content. You know, is the author really in control? Is it consistent? Does the, the style do something for the material? Is it interesting? You know, is it a departure or it, does it borrow from other particular writers? Who does it remind us of? That would be great. But I loved both those reviews. You know they were so generous and nice, and it's not like I'm going to complain about the you know, they, they were really great. The, the L.A. Times won this last weekend, I was like, Yay! <laughs> so, "Yeah So All right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you again to Skyly Books. <clears throat> I'm of course happy to sign books or chat. And any other questions? So thank you. Thank you.